Welcome to Bit Splitting with Daniel Jalkut. Today's guest is Jackie Chang, Senior Apple Editor for Ars Technica. Today's show is sponsored by Windows Azure Mobile Services, a quick and easy way to store iOS app data in the cloud. Welcome back to Bit Splitting. This time around, I'm very happy to welcome Jackie Chang. Uh, she is the senior Apple editor at Ars Technica. Also has a history uh, programming as a blogger, as a personality on Twitter. That's that's I think how I got to know you best, Jackie. Uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, it's really great to uh, get the opportunity to try to catch up with you about stuff outside of the way we usually communicate, which is usually, um, you know, what are, what, what are uh, one, or, one or both of our thoughts on the latest Apple scandal that's going down? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Those are always uh, fun times to converse on Twitter, but then sometimes it's nice to talk about other things besides Apple stuff. Right. And it's, uh, you know, I know that we're going to have a lot to talk about because you have often shared stuff on Twitter that's like similar interests to me, so I can relate to where you're coming from. Um, you know, things like running and uh, gardening and I'm things glad. like that. <laughs> so um, one, one of the things I've been trying to do on the show is to start off with just a little background uh, history. So I know, for example, um, that you live in Chicago now. And I know that you went to Purdue, right? Yes. Um, I mean, it's not super exciting, but, um, I, uh, I originally grew up out in the suburbs in Chicago. Um, so for anyone listening, uh, it's Schaumburg. So there's a mall out there and an Ikea and people love going there for Ikea. Um, and then I went to Purdue for school. Yeah. I, uh, I originally went to study, um, computer information systems. Um, Purdue has this like it's like a school of technology that is separate from the school of science and school of engineering. Um, and they kind of view things. It's, it's kind of hard to describe the school of technology, but it's kind of like less theory based than um, science and engineering schools and more kind of real world based. And so I went there for, uh, for that. And then I eventually um, kind of took on a bunch of different majors and I eventually came out on the other end, um, with a degree in information or, um, I'm sorry, in, um, interactive multimedia development, which was kind of like CS light. Mm. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I sort of bounced around a lot among a bunch of different tech majors when I was at Purdue, I was there for five years. So I came out of it with, um, two bachelor's degrees and an associate degree. So I guess it was time well spent. So you you managed to whittle it down to just two bachelor's degrees, <laughs> yeah, or and the associate's degree, of course. But what, right, <laughs> what are there? Is there any example of another major that was on your radar at the time that you could give us? Um, I also did computer graphics uh, for a while, and that is, it's kind of ironic because I consider myself to be pretty weak um, when it comes to imagery and graphics and design, but. Um, that's that was one of my uh, bachelor's degrees, and then, like I said, interactive multimedia, and then my associates was in um, c- 
computer information systems. Because uh, Purdue is kind of weird. They automatically give you an associate's degree when you're like two years into a four-year degree. So it's just kind of like automatic. <laughs> it seems like almost like an encouragement to drop out. It's like, well, here, here's this associate's degree. If you if you don't feel like continuing, right? Exactly. You just leave now. You're just like, eh, whatever. I have enough. So. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Well, that's really cool. I didn't know that you had such a um, a wide ranging number of degrees that you were pursuing. And I guess I shouldn't be surprised because as I hinted at, you have a lot of interests. Yeah, I guess, I guess I felt like I, at the time I didn't quite know exactly what I wanted. So that's, that was sort of reflective of that. I was sort of exploring all these different options. And was that reflected, um, going back like even earlier than college was that, does that reflect how you were as a kid growing up in the suburbs of Chicago? Were you kind of like, kind of kid who would try a lot of different things? Um, sort of. I had a lot of different interests, but um, in terms of specifically technology and computers, I think back then it was so, uh, I mean, I'm not super old, but, you know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. So back then the internet was so new that um, at the time, I think there were so few people who were really into that in the general public that there was no, for me at least as a kid, and especially as a girl who was not really encouraged to get into those kinds of things, um, I wouldn't say there were specific interests when it came to computers. It was mostly just computers. So I was like, yeah, I totally want to go into computers when I'm in college. But of course, you know, once you get to college, you're just like, oh, there's so much to study. I have no idea what to choose. (laughs) Um, so when I was younger though, I mean, I used to, um, I'm always telling people this story, but I used to write these really primitive, um, games with my brother and my cousin. And so we wrote this one video game, um, on my cousin's, uh, windows computer where you were like a gorilla and you jump around. It was a very Pac-Man like game and you jump around and, um, get like fruits and stuff on the scene and you could like fall off an edge and die. And, uh, so I was kind of into programming games back then. Um, but not so much anymore. (laughs) That's really cool. You know, what's funny is, um, my first interview on this podcast was with, was with Guy English. Um, and he, he had a very similar history of his, um, youth getting started programming games. And I was just thinking about that. Um, I was thinking about him because, before uh, interviewing you, I was listening to your appearance on the Labyrinth podcast with Cesar Torres, mm-hmm. um, and I, I heard this great story about your sort of perhaps uh, poorly chosen decision to take a Greyhound bus trip oh. uh, from <laughs> Indianapolis to Philadelphia. Yes. And what's so funny is... This is only the third episode of the podcast, but this is the second Greyhound bus, uh, significant Greyhound bus history, because Guy had his own story about uh, Greyhound busing around the southwestern United States. So you have have this kind of like uh, maybe unrealized similarity to (laughs) Mr. Guy English on a couple levels. You know, it's funny because um, I've told that story a few times because it was kind of crazy. And um, I guess I'll recap it here real quick. But um, I've uh, I've found that a lot of people have a weird Greyhound bus story. If anyone has ever ridden Greyhound for more than like 20 minutes, um, I think that most people's stories are kind of crazy. <laughs> so, so in a way, I don't know, maybe it's just something that a lot of young people used to do. Now it's more like Megabus. People take Megabus everywhere. 
to kind of relate to that. Uh, when I was a kid, I took the Greyhound bus several times with my mom, but I wonder if I was just too young to sort of recognize how crazy things might have been because I actually took the Greyhound bus from St. Louis, Missouri to California. Oh, wow. With my mom. And I remember, I remember enough about it to know that it was like a three day nonstop ride. Yeah, that's really long. Yeah. But the only thing I remember about it is um, a guy in like Denver bus depot giving me a silver dollar. And I think back to that now and like hearing your story, you, you know, well, I'll let you tell it in a second. But, um, you know, I, I just thought this guy was this really nice guy who gave me a silver dollar, but he might have been like the world's creepiest child molester or something that was my mom was just trying to protect me against. Um, <laughs> so tell us, yeah, tell us briefly just what what your ride was like and what maybe what motivated you to um, to you hinted on the uh, Labyrinth podcast that. You were sort of just young. I think you said you were 18. Yeah. Um, Well, of course, now I'm sure I'll forget all the interesting details from when I was on uh, Cesar's podcast. But um, yeah, I I would say the the reason was not uh, anything crazy. It was mostly that I had... So this was right when my friends and I had all gone to college. And um, in retrospect, it's kind of weird. But at the time, I didn't think so. I had a lot of friends from high school who went away to really good schools. Um, and I still don't really know why. So I had a friend who was going to like MIT or something up in Boston and he had made friends with a bunch of other, you know, smart MIT guys. And I had sort of struck up this, like, I wouldn't say it was an online relationship necessarily, but we were sort of flirting and interested in each other. (laughs) And, and so I became friends with this guy from who went to MIT and, um, they were, him and my friend from high school were trying to get me to come up to visit at some point just to just hang out and whatever. And so my, you know, my parents were really overprotective, even though I was away at college, you know, they were kind of always in my business. So I just decided I was going to take the Greyhound bus up from Purdue, which is um, just about an hour outside of Indianapolis, um, all the way to Boston. And that's, for me, I mean, like I said, I grew up out in the suburbs and even though it's in Chicago, you know, like I was just a suburban kid. I was pretty well sheltered up to that point. So for me, taking that kind of risk was huge at the time. And, um, I think I didn't quite realize how crazy it would be, especially with Greyhound. Um, there were multiple stops, of course, you know, we stopped off in Ohio and then probably Pennsylvania in the middle of nowhere and then New York and then Boston. And then on the way back, um, I got stranded in Philadelphia because I had somehow estimated the bus schedule wrong and I was stuck there overnight. And I don't know if anyone listening has ever been to the Greyhound station in Philadelphia, but it is in basically like the worst part of town. Um, I was stuck there overnight as just this like 18 year old college girl and there was, like, this guy got mugged right outside the Greyhound at, like, 2 in the morning. And he came in yelling. I mean, he, in retrospect, he probably was on something. <laughs> but he was yelling and screaming. And, like, he he eventually started, like, begging the Greyhound people to help him. And I think they called the police, so there were police there. And I'm just trying to get home back to <laughs> Purdue. And I don't know what the hell's going on. I'm, like... I'm like calling my friends at Purdue because my, my parents didn't know where I was. So I didn't want to tell them. And, um, 
I was like, oh, you know, I'm stuck here. There's crazy people running around. Like, I don't know what's happening. And um, I was going to get back to Indianapolis at some point, and the and I was going to be stuck in Indianapolis overnight, too, because I had messed up the schedule. And so um, a friend of mine from Indy was she like called her parents to see if they would pick me up at the Greyhound station and drive me back to Purdue. And they were so against the idea that I had gone without my parents' knowledge, even though I was over 18. Um, they were so against it that they refused to come pick me up. Oh my God. And so like I eventually, um, actually I can't remember how I got back. Somebody, somebody's parents, um, one of my other friends from college, his parents drove like two hours to come pick me up from Indianapolis and then drive me another hour to Purdue. So I really appreciate that. <laughs> that's, a, <laughs> it, yeah, that's a life. That's a lifetime. Uh, that's something you'll remember for a lifetime, right? That I know. gratitude. Yeah, it, it was. You know, I don't blame anyone's parents for not wanting to pick me up, but it was kind of a crazy situation because it was the first time I was really faced with this sort of scenario where I was. I was really in a weird. I, I wouldn't say I was in overt danger, but it was just a really weird situation for me. And I'd never been in that kind of thing. And, um, of course, along the whole trip, too, there were all these weirdos talking to me on the bus. There was some guy between New York and Boston who was, like, desperately trying to get me to go to lunch with him after we got to Boston. And I was like, I was like, I'm meeting my friends. I can't, I'm not going to lunch with you. <laughs> and he, like, waited around the Greyhound station to make sure that I was actually leaving with people and not, I don't know, I don't know, going off with someone else. Um, so the whole situation was kind of crazy and I have not ridden the Greyhound since, although I probably would, um, now, but I just don't really have that opportunity now. Mega, mega bus. Okay. Greyhound. <laughs> yeah. It's a, I, I've, I've ridden it, uh, between, um, Boston and New York these days. I wonder if it's changed a little cause it seems like it's, um, or, or maybe um, tell me if this is right. Maybe the Boston to New York leg of your journey, aside from the aggressive, like, flirting guy maybe that was like the least whack job leg of it yeah i would say that that was probably the least weird leg of it um although the that guy was really just all you know all i wanted to do was read (laughs) and listen to music and stuff and he was just talking to me the whole time and it was yeah i again it wasn't like it was threatening necessarily but i was just like okay you know this is what the Greyhound is like. You have to talk to weird people on the bus all the time. <laughs> and, right. And um, nowadays, I have never ridden the Megabus, but I know people who have. And um, at least there's like Wi-Fi and stuff on the Megabus. Well, you know, um, when I was uh, 20, I got hired at Apple and I had... Wow, um, when you were 20? I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, I actually I had been working there a little earlier than that as a contractor. So yeah, I got a really early start there. Huh. But what, the, what that meant was I was sort of similarly naive in some ways about the world, I guess. And I felt like I need to do something adventurous before. So so I got hired and there was like this two week period before my start date. And um, I, I think I kind of pulled a Jackie and I hopped on a train to Mexico. Wow. And um, but it, it turned out very, I mean, it sounds like you got even you got at least you got further than I did. But I got like, down into Mexico. And then I took a bus down to I think Ensenada and um and then like I just proceeded to freak out in Ensenada but um oh my god but my bus ride in in Mexico was uh the, the one special trivia I would I, I remember from that is um 
sort of like getting on the bus for this four hour ride, I think a three or four hour ride. And then, um, only finding out, you know, after I had had a big like bottle of water before getting on that, that the, the, the uh, bathroom on this particular bus was used for luggage storage. Of course. So, so, and then as we rode down, uh, the highway, occasionally you just see this like trickle of fluid coming down the aisle and you just know, okay, well somebody couldn't hold it. Okay. But that's my bus story. <laughs> well, that sounds actually, I think that sounds crazier than mine. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I heard yours on Cesar's podcast and I, and I thought it was, uh, I, you know, he said um, maybe he's going to have you back on the show, and 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 we'll see if it's the second or first craziest thing. Oh but man, I what did he, I what did I say that was so crazy? Did I, I did I miss any details? You, well, you actually you actually sauced it up nicely here for me. So that's <laughs> this sounds a little crazier. I think he might he might be a little jealous of the uh, of the recap here. Well, if anyone's curious, uh, the guy that I went to go see, it did not work out. <laughs> <laughs> we we met and it was horrible and I went home and that was it. <laughs> so oh, that's terrible. So it was just horrible from like minute one, or was there like a I don't uh, get too personal? But it, it, did you? I, it was it was horrible from minute one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, luck, luckily I also had like I said I also had high school friends, so it wasn't that bad. It wasn't like I was trapped with just right. this weirdo that I'd never met. But um, but it was not the best experience. Um, I think also when I, while I was there, uh, they kind of took me around to all these parties, and you know, like I said, I was really sheltered as a suburbanite child. And so this is the first time that all of a sudden I was around all these people who were like doing drugs and drinking and, you know, I was only 18. So I was just like, I was like, Oh my God. Right. You know, I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe I'm doing this. And this guy was totally weird. And, um, so yeah, we, we only met that one time and then I went home and never saw him again. So, so yeah, that was the end of that story. So, uh, this is kind of a weird leap from that, but, um, you know, I mentioned now, of course, what you're well, most well known for is being a, a writer for Ars Technica. And, um, you, you know, you acknowledged on the Labyrinth podcast that you kind of have like this semi internet celebrity. And just that just jogged my, my thinking on that subject to think like, do you ever wonder? Cause, uh, I, you know, I, I sort of have a similar, you know, notoriety. Um, mm. and I, I wonder about this sometimes. Do you ever think about like, are there are there these kind of like random like people who for you know not to be too not to be too dismissive but it sounds like it's appropriate in this case people who were just like bumps in the road for you who, who you ever wonder if they just like stumble upon your internet presence today and they're like oh my god like that's what happened to her yeah i it's i don't know it's kind of weird <laughs> i i um when i first started writing for ours it was, I think I can say this. I mean, it was mostly a huge, it was a lucky thing for me. It was kind of an accident. Um, I became a member of the Ars community, like the Ars forums, back when I was still in college. So actually, even before I really even entered the, the job market or the workforce, um, I had been part of Ars, and I had become a moderator of the forums, even while I was still in college. And so I had gone through, once I graduated, I had gotten a couple of jobs as a developer. I was a web developer, back-end um, and I was just kind of working as a developer and then uh, just sort of participating in the RS forums whenever I had free time. And then during my second job out of college, I was uh, I was like an ASP.NET developer. And for some reason, 
I, I totally kicked ass at that job, by the way. I was, I was totally awesome, but we had a lot of downtime during the day um, between projects. And so between projects, I kind of got roped into writing um, for ours, just like as a, on a freelance basis. Um, at that time, ours didn't have full-time, full-time employees. So we were just barely at that time beginning to pay people to write. And um, I, I sort of got convinced to write here and there, you know, when I wasn't busy at work. And so one day I decided I was quitting. Um, it was just before I moved to Chicago. Uh, so I lived in Cincinnati. And um, ours was like, well, we might hire some people soon. So, uh, you know, if you're interested, don't get another job because we might hire you. And um, at the time, I was it was so crazy to me because I was very much in the mode, in the mind state where I was like, well, this is my career already. I've already established my career as uh, as like a web developer. I don't want to switch tracks and become a writer. Um, but then, I don't know, I think for some reason I just decided to try it because I didn't really have any other prospects um, in another city. And then I just sort of leapt into it. And it has, good and bad things have come from it. I wouldn't say bad, actually, but um, things I didn't expect, which, as you mentioned, was one of them was sort of the weird internet celebrity kind of persona. Because I, when I started writing for ours, that is not what I was going for. That's not what I had planned. <laughs> and it's not what I expected at all. I, um, even when Twitter, so I was hired on, I started writing for ours in like 2005. And I was hired on as a full-time editor in 2007. Um, and Twitter started in 2006. And so I, I remember I started traveling for ours right around 2006, 2007. And people would come up to me and be like, oh, I follow you on Twitter. And at that time, I was so shocked that anyone who was not a, a friend of mine would follow follow me on Twitter. And I was like, I was like, why would you possibly do that? And sometimes people would be like, oh, I, I, I read your stuff on ours and therefore I follow you on Twitter. But then there started being this kind of group of people who only followed me on Twitter and were not familiar with my work on ours. And that just blew my mind. And it still kind of blows my mind a little bit because, uh, I don't know, you, I guess maybe it's, a, it's kind of a symptom of of cool people, I guess. But like, you never really expect that anyone will ever really care about what you say. Um, just on a random social network. And so for me, that was how I felt. I was like, if you don't follow my work and you otherwise don't know me, what could possibly be your motivation to follow me? <laughs> right. And um, I mean, now, of course, it's like a million years later um, and I have like 18,000 followers almost. And I still don't know why people follow me. Um, it's still kind of crazy because... I don't know. I mean, I just post about normal stuff in my everyday life. And um, for some reason, people want to see it. So it's I, I think it's a weird struggle to deal with that kind of thing, because on one hand, it's really cool. You really like it that people like who you are and like what you have to say. But on the other hand, it's uh, sort of a burden because there's also, as I'm sure you know, there there are tons and tons of haters out there and people who who just, you know, don't like what you have to say and you kind of have to deal with that too. And, and I censor myself a lot nowadays. I really um, try to control what I say because I have decided I no longer can deal with, um, you know, huge torrents of hate coming from people who don't know me. <laughs> so, 
Oh, that's unusual. Most people really enjoy huge torrents of hate. No, I, <laughs> it's, I, I think it's a constant struggle for me. And um, I think it's a struggle for some other people too, but it's a struggle for me to deal with that kind of uh, sort of recognition. Yeah. And it, it really spills out into real life sometimes too. Whenever I go to conferences or even just real life, like when I go to the Apple store or anywhere, I mean, again, it's kind of cool on, in some ways when people recognize you and they're just like, Oh my God, I love your tweets. I love your work and whatever. I mean, you know, of course I, I love hearing that and I think anyone would, but it's also kind of, it, it sort of introduces a level of stress too. Cause sometimes when all I want to do is just go to the Apple store and get like a cable or something, I worry about it. I'm just like, I think about what I look like right. <laughs> to make sure that people, if people recognize me, I don't look like a homeless person, <laughs> you know? And, um, I think, or, or if they take your picture and tweet it and say, hi, I saw you Jackie on. Yes. You and know. you know, that's happened before. <laughs> so I worry about those kinds of things. It's not that I'm completely vain or anything, but I don't, you know, I work from home. So I, I do actually look like a homeless person probably most of the time. <laughs> And so I don't want to look like that when people are seeing me out in public. So I think there's a certain level of anxiety that goes with it. Yeah, I can relate to that. Um, and and I, I think you and I both have that kind of like, sh- we're, we're at that level of exposure where it's like, you sort of expect some people to recognize you, but then it's still shocking when it happens. And like, I, 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 ex- like I, I explained to my wife, like when I go to WWDC these days, um, it's a really exhausting experience because it's it's so gratifying to have all these different people kind of like know who you are and, and want to say hi and introduce themselves. But you, you you lose that luxury of just being anonymous, right? Just kind of like disappearing in the crowd. Yeah, and exactly. It's a very, very, very slight experience of what real celebrities must experience, like walking anywhere. Um, but, you know, I get a little taste of it too. Like, uh, it, it, and it can be that like borderline gratifying slash creepy um you know you you ever get these kind of tweets or something where somebody you don't follow but who maybe follows you is like did it you know did i just see you at the platform of oh yeah such and such station (laughs) and you're like "Uh, what do i say i mean like that that's actually true i want to be friendly on the other hand it's kind of creepy right i always tell i i always try to reply to those people and tell them you know, I'm sure this goes against everything I just said, but when those kinds of tweets pop up, I always reply and say, oh, next time say hi. Yeah. Because in reality, I would rather someone actually say hi to me in person than tweet at me like creepily later. <laughs> I would right. I would rather actually say hello to that person and shake hands and whatever than, um, than kind of try to come up with a weird, you know, kind of semi-awkward response to their tweet. Um, not that the tweets are bad, but... You know, if we're going to compare. <laughs> right. So. They, they may be the most innocent person in the world, but there's just yeah. something there's something that hints at stalkerishness when it's like this one sided yeah. social event. Right. And it's like, that's just not the best feeling. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it makes you feel like I think that that, if anything, really amplifies the feeling that you're being watched when you're out in public. Right. Like you're just out and people are seeing you and they're tweeting about you and you don't know about it until later when you check. And I think that part of it kind of makes it feel a little more uncomfortable. Whereas if someone were to just come up to you and say, hi, um, 
you know, you're just like, oh, cool. You know, someone who, who likes my work, like that's awesome. And then that's it. Right. So I think it's definitely a different feeling. Where, whereas like online, we have this luxury that we, nobody sees anything about us, generally speaking, unless we put it out there. So like, it's, it's sort of like when you go out in the real world, it's sort of like you are on a webcam, <laughs> a webcam of the, of the world camera, right? And I'd never put like a webcam in my hmm. office. Oh man, but, you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I guess that's just kind of like, it's an interesting divide. Like I find it kind of comforting that I can control what people see and hear about me, even yeah. though I am, even though I am, I think similar to you have, I am or have been maybe a little bit more sharing than some people online. It's still all under your own control. So, Yeah, I used to, um, back a couple of years ago, for some reason I have stopped telling people this, I don't know why, um, but I used to tell people all the time at conferences that um, when it comes to Twitter, you know, the things that you share tend to distract people from the things that you're not sharing. <laughs> so in a way, uh, you know, you can select the things that you share online and you may even seem like you're oversharing, uh, you know, from the outside. Um, but then, of course, you could be doing all sorts of other things that you're not sharing and people just have no idea about. And um, in a way, that's really powerful because it really allows you to control the message and control what yeah. people know about you. So there's really bad stuff going on, huh? That we didn't <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it's uh I've had all sorts of crazy stuff going on in the last year, so uh good and bad, but yeah. you know, I I don't share everything. So, you know, people who see my Twitter, they might know part of my life, but not everything. And I think it's obvious when somebody I think it's obvious that somebody is sharing everything versus just being a little bit more open than other people because there's all it, the people who share everything they inevitably overshare on some some like extremely un, you know, uncomfortable topic and it's like you know you, you can kind of tell that somebody is at least editing even yeah. if even if it comes off as being like a little more sharing than like like um than you know like uh, i don't know you mentioned on the on the labyrinth podcast also like your admiration for uh, some comics like uh, margaret cho and i i'm sure there are a lot of things that margaret cho does not share oh yeah know? i'm def i'm sure of that too yeah but you just you, you you can admire her willingness to share some of the things that she does and there's just sort of also respect that there's editing going on mm-hmm Definitely. We were just talking about this. Um, so ours has a podcast. It's called ours Technicast. Um, and we were actually just talking about something very similar on our this week's episode um, about like how I, I kind of made a joke about how um, services like Facebook and I think LiveJournal and a couple others, you know, put limits on on young kids sort of joining and posting and so I had sort of joked that maybe it's it's not so much to protect the kids from from weird, creepy stalkers online, but m- maybe it's because those of us who are in control of the technology today can look back on ourselves at that age, and we're trying to protect these kids from oversharing. Right. Um, because I know certainly when I was younger, I uh, overshared a lot on the internet. I still do a little bit. Um, you know, I used to have a blog and... I said this on the Ars podcast too, but uh, you know, I, I stand by all the facts that I posted on my blog. But the, I wrote about a lot of things that maybe I would not today. Um, just like 
about my coworkers and frustrations with the family and things like that, things that I would not necessarily post about today so openly. Right. Um, well, we knew we knew that. Um, I think we were aware, we were smart enough to know that it was open to the public back then, but we probably didn't really anticipate how much how much yeah. interest there might be. <laughs> you know, I think, it's, it's a, I think you're right. It's when I was when I was writing back then, I knew it was open to the public, but at the same time, I had this idea in my head that. I was like, well, you know, not everyone on earth is on the internet yet. <laughs> so, you know, how likely is it that someone's going to find my blog? And I very naively kind of assumed that no one would ever find it, especially not my family, who were extremely tech phobic. So, um, and then of course that back- backfired on me very badly. Um, my family did find it and it was a huge deal. And that was the first time I, I was like, oh, you know, even non-techies, really, they they don't have such a hard time finding your stuff on the internet. So maybe it's time to start, <laughs> start reining, reining it in a little bit. Right. Google, Google actually works and, and yeah. anybody can type your name in. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to take a minute here to thank my sponsor this time around windows, Azure mobile services. And this is a really a uh, service aimed at mainly at mobile developers who are looking for a way to easily store data in the cloud. But you can also do all manner of other cloud-related services. Uh, supports features such as authentication, handling push notifications. You can even host business logic in the cloud with JavaScript. And what's great about this service from Microsoft is it's not just limited to one platform. Uh, they're asking me to really promote the iOS support that they are making available uh, which is great, and it really makes it easy for iOS app developers to easily set up a lot of the common things you might want to use cloud-based storage for. But what's great about this is if you've got other folks on your team building clients for Android uh, or Windows 8, you can have the same service in the cloud providing the data backend to all of these different products. And that's something you can't count on from some other services that are aimed at just a single solitary platform. Uh, if you want to learn more about Windows Azure, I really encourage you to go to www.windowsazure.com slash iOS. What you'll find there is just great. It's a, it's a tutor- video tutorials from my friend Brent Simmons, who you may know as the developer of the Mac-based uh, newsreader NetNewsWire. He's also gone on to uh, develop Glassboard for iOS, and he's just really experienced with all manner of Apple-related technologies. Yet he went in uh, on behalf of Microsoft and really learned the ropes with Windows Azure. And uh, he will show you all of the different things you can do with Windows Azure mobile services, specifically for iOS. And I realize many of you are not developers, but keep Windows Azure mobile services in mind when you hear your developer friends complaining about how hard it is to do things in the cloud. Windows Azure can really make a lot of that stuff much easier, and you'll be doing your friends a favor by recommending it. So thanks again, Windows Azure Mobile Services, for sponsoring the show. Once again, if you want to learn more about it, you can check it out at www.windowsazure.com slash iOS. So uh, I, I'm really fascinated by um, the fact that you have this training in computer programming you said it was uh you sort of alluded to it being very pragmatic training i guess uh, non-theoretical i guess did you mean that like you spent a lot of time 
focusing on like real world uh, like I, I know you said you ended up doing web backend development um was that stuff that was covered in your uh college training or yeah i um this is this is really not the best way to describe it but um i often try to tell people when i'm talking about it's usually when i'm going back to talk about Purdue's uh, school of technology but i kind of see it more as a in a way kind of like a technical school like like these I don't know. I don't know how to, <laughs> but yeah, less theoretical and more real world. So certainly we, um, one of the big things that they used to do, I don't know if they still do, um, is that they would bring in these instructors who were not, um, you know, like tenured professors. They were like people who worked at Microsoft for 10 years or like someone who came from Oracle who just wanted to teach for like two semesters. Um, so we had a lot of instructors who were actually just real world, just kind of managers and programmers, um, people who were not kind of in the university system and teaching us. And so that was really cool in a way. I mean, certainly I think a lot of, you know, if I, I was friends with a lot of CS students. And so I think from their side, they felt like it was really cool that I was able to get that exposure because they felt like they were getting too much of this sort of old stodgy um, you know, professor kind of experience, whereas I was getting all this new experience from people in the real world. Um, but it was also a little bit challenging because um, a lot of, I think it's fair to say, you know, I think they're all great people and all, but I think it's fair to say that not every manager and not every programmer out there is a great instructor. <laughs> right. And so um, that was always a little bit difficult because the instruction itself was sometimes hard. Um, but if you're, I think that if you're open to just learning from people in general and you're not kind of stuck in this uh, mode where you're like student mode and that person's the professor um, and all you do is just sort of talk to people and learn from them, I think that it was a good experience. Um, so, yeah, I would say that was mostly how I would describe my my education was through these sort of industry people mostly. And um, it was certainly very good. I was for... I would say almost entirety of my college education, I was like the only woman there. Wow. Uh, so there were the, those challenges, of course. But um, And sometimes the professors themselves uh, were happy to perpetuate the uncomfortable situation. Um, but I had a lot of really great peers on the, on the flip side. So I had um, good friends who were able to sort of commiserate with me and talk about creepy, pr- creepy instructors. <laughs> that kind of stuff. So it all balances out. So the, the interesting thing of course, is that you ended up becoming not just a writer, like in a creative writing sense, but you know, an, uh, a journalist in a professional journalism sense. And uh, I'm guessing there wasn't any journalism training. Was there any side course or anything you took that prepared you for that? Oh yeah, definitely not. I actually, one of my main criticisms of uh, Purdue in general is that um, I feel like the educations are not particularly uh, well-rounded. And so, yeah, I definitely did not get any kind of journalism training. In fact, I almost got almost no writing training at all. I I probably, when I was in college, I had like a freshman-level creative writing course that everyone was required to take, and that was it. I mean, the next writing course I took was just before I graduated, and it was focused on resumes. So it was entirely like how to make a not horrible resume. (laughs) 
And um, yeah, I, I, like that part of it, I that's why I consider myself lucky. Um, I think it's anything that I know about writing, I got out of like high school <laughs> or just writing on my own. I used to write a lot um, just privately in my own journal. And then, like I mentioned earlier, I used to write on a blog. So um, I was just writing just because I enjoyed writing for for my own sake. Um, and I just sort of fell into the whole journalism thing. And so that part of it is really just nothing but pure luck. I, everything I learned about what I know now, um, I learned on the job, you know, the, the first time I, I first started just writing these like little blog posts at ours about Apple stuff. Um, back then we were not calling them blogs. We were calling them journals and now the journals are dead. So we just kind of treat everything the same. But um, I was just writing little blog posts, and then I started writing reviews. And then at some point, um, I, I started getting into writing these real articles. And for a lot of real articles, you have to get comment from the company and try and get comments from other people. And I did not have any idea how to do any of those things. And um, what's weird about ours is that most of us, especially the early staffers, none of us have journalism training. So we were all kind of learning together and none of us really knew what you're really supposed to do. No one knew how other publications do it or newspapers. And so we were just kind of making it up as we go. And um, my my managing editor, who's still an editor today at ours, um, Eric Bingaman, he was just like, well, just call him up and just tell them that you are a reporter. And I was like, am I though? Am I really a reporter? And he was like, who cares? Just say it. <laughs> and so, it's great. And so I did, I just started calling up places and telling them I'm a, I'm a reporter for Ars Technica and I have some questions. And, um, I mean, I just sort of picked it up that way. And now, now that I know lots of other reporters, I, I know that that's how you're supposed to do it. <laughs> and, um, I, I think that, like I said, I think that not only am I lucky, I think we are lucky kind of as a publication that we were able to sort of sort of claw our way into that because we really we really had no idea what we were doing <laughs> back then. And um, we're so lucky to be, be where we are now considering that we had uh, no experience at all in, in this sort of journalism world. Well, it really strikes me that some somebody at ours or a bunch of you at ours must have had the hunch, the right hunches about what good journalism is because these days it seems to me that that's one of the things that sets your publication apart from many many of this uh many of the sites that might be derisively dismissed as just blogs or something is that you you really deliberate over these issues and like you know I I I often notice when uh when some newsworthy item comes out, it'll be like, bam, 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 this blog, that blog. And even, you know, if, even a few respected publications and where's the R's opinion on this or where's the R's roundup on this. And then it'll come maybe a few hours later or maybe the next day. And it's like, seems to me like your motivation, uh, when I say your, I mean, ours in general is really getting the facts right and getting the the story um, good in a way that maybe you wouldn't expect from a bunch of inexperienced, you know, at one time inexperienced non-journalists. Yeah. I feel like, um, you know, I, I don't really know how that really happened, but I, I feel like that probably came out of the fact that we were so inexperienced that we did not, 
I don't know. We, we've never had fact checkers, for example, like someone whose job is just to check the facts, which I only learned uh, actually even a couple of years ago that that is an actual job. Um, so we have always really been beholden to our audience. And our audience is, is as I'm sure you know, very kind of nerdy themselves. And so uh, it's both a blessing and a curse in that when we write anything, the audience is extremely quick to call us on anything that we get wrong or slightly inaccurate or pretty much, you know, anything that could possibly be up for questioning, the audience is on you. I mean, they're on you instantly and they're kind of relentless and kind of cruel sometimes. So uh, I would say that the that's why we approach things the way that we do, because um, it's mostly just to make sure that we are serving the audience as best we can and that we can at least minimize, uh, you know, of course we try to eliminate, but um, we try to minimize the criticisms that could come from the audience. So the idea is that we're always thinking ahead of time, like what will somebody complain about? You know, even if it is like an annoying troll (laughs) or something, you know, what is someone going to complain about? And, you know, if we can find that answer easily before we publish, then we'll, we'll try to find it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we've never, I think most people who read us, it's not a huge secret that we've never been the fastest in the world. Um, I do feel like we've sort of improved in that area in terms of being fast, but we've never been the fastest, and we've always mostly just focused on trying to get things right. We don't really want to publish something and then have to update later and say, oh, you know, this is 75% inaccurate. It turns out that everything is different. You know, we don't want to be like that. <laughs> so we would rather publish something that's correct um, than something fast. And I guess we've lucked out in that area because um, that's, you're right, that is what we're kind of known for. And I think it's uh, the kind of thing that leads to a very high reputation, um, maybe you know, maybe you're missing out on some of the things that being fast leads to, like maybe, you know, you get a certain kind of audience that some, you know, n- some like news hound audience that advertisers, I guess certain advertisers might prefer. Um, but your description of the way you prioritize the, the truth and like really trying to avoid being wrong. Um, it's interesting. That reminds me of an interview I heard real, really recently with John Gruber of Daring Fireball on on the uh, New Disruptors podcast, and um, it's also kind of interesting because he is also a you know a computer programmer by training who decided to become you know for I I, I would call him a journalist. Um, he seems to have journalistic integrity, uh, and one of the things he was saying was just like how much it drives him to to try to be right and it's like such a simple such a simple guideline right yeah, try to be right yeah. and but you could just you could see so many people just kind of like saying well let's just do it fast and hope we're right and i think i've been guilty of that myself but um i really respect that uh approach to i and, and you, you say you haven't had fact checkers you're sort of being fact checked by your fear of being wrong in the in the public's eye. <laughs> yeah, basically. I mean, of course, everyone makes mistakes. You know, I'm not going to deny that we haven't had our own sort of fumbles here and there. Um, but yeah, I would say that it is really driven by, you could say fear, <laughs> uh, basically driven by this sort of motivation to be 
um, to not look, basically not look stupid (laughs) in front of your audience, you know, especially since we do not have, um, well, nowadays we have hired real journalists, people who are trained in journalism, but, um, you know, our base is, our kind of base staff is not really trained that way. So in a way it really makes you more vigilant to try and be right because you don't want to, you don't want to write something completely inaccurate and then have some other person show up and, and make a fool out of you and then highlight the fact that you're not even a reporter. (laughs) Like, you know, you went to school for computer stuff. You don't know anything about journalism. So I think that that makes the threat all that much more when you could be wrong. And so, yeah, we, I mean, that's certainly, at least for me, that's certainly why I try to sort of get as much information as I possibly can from all sides so that um, I can present as much as I can and that I can understand as much as I can. And I think that goes for everyone else at ours too. Well, I think that's actually, it turns out to be a really good coincidence to have people like yourself, people like John, who are sufficiently trained in this, you know, in, in the technical, in the programming and the way that, you know, software is put together that you can have a non-naive view of the things you're reporting on. And that's kind of like, mm, it would be, you know, it might be, it might be kind of ideal if every tech journalist had more of a technical background. Um, but, you know, at, at some point you, you even said earlier in the show, you said you kind of kicked butt at like your ASP.net job. Um, you must have been feeling if you were kicking butt. You must. I'm imagining you felt pretty good about the job. Were, were you having a good time? And, and how did that? How did that come to an end? In such oh, a way that you would. <laughs> <laughs> You're totally opening a can of worms here. <laughs> I would say that uh, without without spending the next like two hours uh, explaining it, I would say that my experience in that world was both good and bad. Um, I had a lot of good experiences in that. Yeah, I was, I was really good at it and I'm not ashamed to say that. And I can even present you a couple of my past bosses who would say that I was really good at it. Um, so I really enjoy, um, the sort of, the sort of mind state that you're able to go into as a programmer, or at least I was, um, where you're just solving problems and, you know, I love solving problems um, in general, you know, whether it's math or programming or even just writing. Um, I just love sort of figuring out what it is that needs to be answered or fixed or whatever, and then fixing it. And so for me, that was something I really enjoyed doing. And I still kind of enjoy doing, um, I don't have so much of an opportunity to do it anymore in terms of programming, but um, that was something I was really into. At the time, uh, at my second job out of college, my boss was, I was working on a, I was working at a, like a marketing agency that had a, an interactive arm as a lot of marketing agencies do now. And so we did basically all these websites for these companies that were, um, already had relationships with our company for other advertising stuff. And so we were doing a lot of websites, um, a lot of backend stuff because at the time that was becoming big serving up, um, dynamic content instead of static pages. And so um, I, my boss thought I, w- I was totally awesome at like picking up other people's 
code and fixing it quickly and understanding it quickly. And I really did actually kind of like that. I liked problem solving with other people's stuff. Because um, I just think that's really that it basically adds like an extra layer of challenge on top of the the whole idea of solving a problem is uh, solving someone else's problem that they messed up and then you need to fix. So I kind of like that. But um, the negative parts of it, um, you know, not to sound too cliche, but the negative parts of it were really uh, based around me as a female programmer and a female member of the community. Um, I found. You know, I'm not. I'm not going to say that there weren't many, many, many of my peers, um, men, who were awesome and supportive because there were many of them, and there still are. I am. You know, most of my friends are, <laughs> are male uh, programmers. In fact, um, still. But I would say that overall, it was a huge challenge for me to deal with. Um, sort of, I think, in a way, it was I was not ready for the idea that people really would treat me differently, even though I was not, uh, at the time, I was not particularly feminine. Um, I grew up like a hardcore tomboy. And I kind of went into, and I was a tomboy throughout college, and I went into the job market a tomboy. So in my head, I was very, like, I, you know, I dressed horribly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I acted like it. I was certainly not friends with any women because at the time I was very, you know, in retrospect, I was very kind of self-hating in that way. So I, I did not, I was not friends with any women. I was very kind of male acting. Uh, I was into a lot of uh, dude stuff and I still am. Um, but I think in my head, I was like, this totally legit legitimizes me as, you know, a legit geek and nerd and you know one of the guys type thing and I think I was not quite prepared to go into the job market and have people treat me um, so differently and so that part of it was very hard for me to deal with and um, I wouldn't say that it was the number one reason why I left uh, I stopped being a programmer but it was certainly a, a major reason um, aside from just the fact that I was lucky with ours and it was just an opportunity that popped up um, one of the main things that pushed me to finally kind of accept this offer at ours was that I was like, well, I feel, I felt like in that world, I felt like I was very unaccepted and I felt like I was constantly being underpaid and I was constantly being harassed. And so I sort of, you know, admittedly, it was only my second two jobs out of college and I sort of made this decision. So it was very early on. But um, I think that the... For, for lack of a better word, the trauma of dealing with that when it was not expected is part of why I sort of decided to get out. Um, it was just, um, I don't know. I, I feel like a lot of uh, young girls these days are really trained, in a good way, really sort of trained to think that you can do anything. And that part is great. But then you really, you really kind of go into it thinking, yeah, I'm totally awesome. I can totally do all this stuff. And then you show up and people treat you like you are an eight-year-old. <laughs> so um, uh, that part of it is really, um, uh, no one no one prepares you to deal with that part of it, I think. It's like you, you get there and you're like, wait, this, this is not what the deal is. You were, you were supposed to treat me like everybody else. And especially like you were saying, coming, sounds like you almost, you know, like you almost wanted to just be one of the guys and then to have that be denied. Yeah, it was hard. I was hard. Like uh, one of my jobs, 
I, you know, I was hired as a senior level programmer and, and I was the only woman there and they treated me like a glorified secretary. I mean, all the other guys that I worked with, people who were my peers, um, I mean, I was I was the one who had to organize group lunches and I had to go shop for rugs for the office. I mean, they really treated me like I was not um, at their at their level. I was not one of them. So it was like I said, it, it wasn't the only reason. Um, certainly, there are a lot of reasons why I changed career tracks, but um, that was one of them. I think that it was like I said, it was just I was not prepared for it. I was not made aware that even though I was being prepped for kind of going into the world, doing whatever I wanted, I was not prepped for the fact that other people were not ready for that. <laughs> I think that's right. the best way to put it. Yeah. Other people were not ready for it and I was not aware. That's really, it's a really um, disappointing to hear that it went down that way, but I'm not surprised. Of course, I, I'm, I'm not na- that naive. Um, one of the, one of the sort of ironies to me about, the fact that you ended up going into journalism is that of course being a female journalist on the web is not exactly uh, <laughs> a bulletproof oh, I know. experience. I know that's the horrible irony is that I sort of switched a little bit to get away from that. And if anything, I think I'm more exposed to it than, than ever, but just in a different way, of course. But, um, and it, it it makes all the difference in the world if the exposure um, – well, I shouldn't say it makes all the difference in the world, but I can imagine that it's a big difference to you that the venom that you might receive or the you know, poor treatment or whatever is coming from outside of your workplace. Like I, I have to imagine everybody in Ars Technica is treating you with respect that you deserve and, and there's none of that BS going on. Um, and it seems like – you may have traded in like a very small pool of, you know, um, irritants, uh, you know, aggravators for yeah. a much larger one, but a larger pool that you can sort of more easily separate yourself from and dismiss them outright. Yeah, I would say, I mean, certainly I, my, my colleagues at ours are basically the best um, I've ever had. <laughs> I, uh, when I was first hired at ours, I was the only woman and I was still the only woman for like the first like six years. Um, and so, I mean, not that there weren't challenges there in terms of understanding. Um, but yeah, it was certainly was not the same. My coworkers have always been, you know, nothing less than great and respective and everything. Um, but you're right. I think that I, I think you're right in that I have traded sort of a small pool of people that I used to work with closely. Um, for this huge pool of basically the whole internet of vitriol um, coming my way. And it's the difference is that these people are basically the audience versus the people I work with. And I do think that that is a major differentiator because um, when it comes to the people you work with, that's like, that's really supposed to be kind of a safe spot. You know, it's not quite family, but I mean, you see these people every day. So you certainly think of them closer than, closer than a random person on the internet for sure. Um, and so I think that the people you work with treating you with respect is certainly the highest level of, of awesomeness and acceptance. Um, but that said, you know, the audience, the audience can be very cruel. (laughs) They can also be great. Of course, you know, I'm not, 
I'm not here at all to say that the audience isn't great because I have many, many readers who, who I love and, you know, they love my work and we work together. Great. I, I talk to the audience all the time um, via email and comments and stuff. Um, but you're right. It, it's hard because I think the audience in general, the internet has, they sort of uh, have this weird view of you as a writer. You know, they sort of see you as this like quasi celebrity. And so that really puts you up for a certain level of criticism and a certain level of hate. And I think in particular, when you're in tech writing, like I am, um, when you're a woman, that really invites an extra level of hate because people don't know you. Um, unlike your friends and coworkers and stuff, these people really don't know you. And so they love to just make these just grand statements about you and your knowledge. Um, and um, it can be hard. And I think that's hard for everybody. It, you know, it's not just women who write on the internet. It's hard for everyone. Um, you know, at ours, not so much recently, but a few years ago when I used to manage a lot more freelancers, I had a lot of uh, male freelancers who quit because of um, the audience, because the audience is just too much for them, too cruel to them, uh, you know, too nasty, too threatening. And so certainly I think it's a problem overall online. Um, I, but I do think that, that people like me and people also like Casey Johnston at ours um, and many other women who write on the internet, I think that we do receive a certain level of uh, vitriol. Like there was someone recently who had commented on something. I, I can't even remember what now who had commented and was like, Jackie and Casey are obvious affirmative action hires. Oh God. I mean, now the worst part is I was one of the first hires at ours so, you know, it's it's insulting to me because I was one of the first people to be brought on as a full-time person and now I'm being characterized as someone who was just hired for because I don't have a penis. Um <laughs> and you know, it's it's just it's these kinds of things and I think the thing that people don't quite realize when they when we talk about these things in public is that you know, you hear about it and you're just like, "Oh, this is horrible." You know, it's horrible that you have to deal with that. But for those comments, those comments happen all day, every day. And I'm talking about every single day of your career. <laughs> so in that perspective, um, I think it can wear you down. And which is why we, I've probably lost lots of writers to it. Because, um, you know, once you've been dealing with it every single day of your life for five years or something, it can really, uh, it can really get to you. So... I don't know. I mean, that's the challenge of the internet, right? You can be anonymous and make comments, but then, then the comments are not always that great. I see that. I see a very similar thing happen with software developers who are going out on their own and they're making their own uh, app. You know, maybe they're not completely refined yet in their ability to make apps that really shine. Mm -hmm. And then they go out there and they put their stuff out there and they get just torn completely. You know, uh, you know, not constructively criticized, and the same kind of thing happens as you described with like your freelancers who who just basically run away. It's um, I think it's something it's something of like a impedance mismatch between a greater public that is so numerous and so familiar with like an old an old school expectation that anybody who is putting themselves out there or is on the front line as a as a named personality 
like the only the only way we had to sort of cope with that or the only understanding we had of that kind of relationship in the past was an outright celebrity. Yeah, and, exactly. And now there's just like a hundred, hundred, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of people who are doing various types of work and putting their name on it and putting it out there. And there's just like this numbskull <laughs> class of people out there who does who doesn't get it yet that that doesn't mean we are like d- dulled to the you know the 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 ridicule um, of like a of like a celebrity mocking. Yeah, I think that this is something that I I I wish I could talk about more, but I feel like I never quite come up with the right words for it. Um, but I do feel I agree with you completely. I think that there's kind of a, especially thanks to the internet and thanks to Twitter and and other social mediums, um, there is kind of now um, probably a more prominent class, if if you can call it a class, of like kind of like minor celebrities. And the problem is that we are all still real people. And we're all still just trying to do our work and, you know, not ruin the world every day. And um, I, I think that I think that it's weird because there's a lot of people out there who don't see us as real people. They see us like people who are kind of minor celebrities. People they see us as celebrities, so they kind of treat us that way as, as people who, are not real, like people who are basically character caricatures in their mind that they can just sort of like just just lob these horrible comments at and um i think that's the weird uh realization from the other end is that like for me at least uh, the only way that i can make peace with it is that i have to remind myself that a lot of these people don't see me or even know me as a person they see me and know me as a like a caricature that they've invented right. that they ha- like sort of see in a certain light and they want to criticize in a certain light. And they don't, you know, they're not necessarily criticizing me as a human being. They're criticizing this, like this, like version of Jackie Chang that they have. And so, um, I, I mean, at least for me, that's the only way I can live with it because, <laughs> because otherwise, I mean, how do you deal with all these people? I mean, I, like you said, I, there's lots of developers who have sort of come into that as well. Um, and I'm, you know, how do you deal with it? Yeah. I mean, I, it's, there's no way around it because the people behave the way that they do. There's no way around it similar to what you must do. There's no way around it short of having developing a thick skin and trying to rationalize some of the ways that people behave, you know, trying to be sort of like empathetic to their, I guess, naive, stupidity about it right (laughs) i mean like they don't they just don't get it and and one of the kind of flip side things that i've taken from you know experiencing this kind of thing on a small level is i have become much more empathetic to so-called real celebrities because um i think all of this like bad behavior towards celebrities is rooted in this sense that oh they must be like they must just think they're so great that they can just take <laughs> they can take yeah. any any manner of criticism, you know, like uh Madonna, I'm sure she doesn't care if somebody on on Twitter says that, you know, she's a whore or something. I'm sure that's fine for her, but um I don't think that's true. I think that uh what I've learned from not only my own experience but from having the 
sort of the luxury of meeting some people who are much more, you know, notorious than I am, um, is appreciating that, you know, unless you're like, uh, unless you're an inhumane person, you never stop being human. You never stop having that concern over how people are feeling about you, what they're, how they're talking yeah. about you. And that sort of made me realize like, you know, that's one of the, one of the great things I think about the internet and Twitter is like, you can, f- you start to develop this like spectrum of, wow, you know, I know some, I know some people on Twitter who are c- kind of actually legitimately celebrities and they get pissed and hurt and, mm-hmm. And um, you just have to assume then that it goes all the way to the top. You have to assume that, for example, Barack Obama (laughs) is a little bit hurt when, you know, somebody says that he is Hitler. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like the difference is he has developed a very thick skin and you have developed a thick skin. I have developed a thick skin and we – some of us have to develop it more effectively than others. Well, anyway, um, uh, one of the things on that on that uh, on that note, I know that you and I share a hobby in running. Oh yes, and this <laughs> this relates because I see your tweets from time to time where it's like, today I have no time, but I must go run because that's the only cure for. Uh-huh. <laughs> what the, the state people have put me in today yeah <laughs> so that's a really nice just on a on a on a positive uh note that's yeah. like a nice that's another way of dealing with it there's having the thick skin and then there's having some kind of uh outlet to let that steam out you know i um i have what's funny is that nowadays people sort of know that about me, that I like to run. But, um, you know, before probably like a few years ago, even maybe like four years ago, I had never run more than like half a mile ever in my whole life. And so it's kind of a fairly new hobby for me to run. Um, and I, I started it for health reasons, but I found, um, over the last several years um, of course, there are health be- health benefits, of course. Uh, you know, I, I'm the last person to say there aren't. Um, but I think more than health benefits, I personally have benefited um, in terms of like sort of the mental and emotional uh, side of running in that it really, it's kind of, it's so hard to explain to people who don't run. But for me, at least, it's really a way to sort of get inside your head in almost like a meditative way when you're running. Like I just kind of get out all this like anger and aggression and frustrations and anything that is, has been bugging me. I can really get that out during a run. And um, so it's not just a physical thing. It's really kind of a, it's almost, I'm not really like a spiritual person, but it's kind of almost like a spiritual thing. Like you're just kind of, it's really cleansing for me to go run and just get all these things out. And um, especially on a bad day, if I'm having a really bad day and people are really upsetting me, um, of course, by the time it's time to run, I'm like really, really upset and I don't want to. But then when I do, it's really helpful because it really kind of helps you put things in perspective, I think, in terms of realizing um, you know, if I always try to listen to people who criticize my work, as I think most people do. Um, but I think it really helps you put things in perspective. You know, how much of it matters. 
and how much of it should really bother you, you know, past the point of past the point of improving your work and moving on, you know, how much of it should really be bothering you, you know, deep down inside. And so I think running has really helped in that way. But, you know, that said, you know, even though I love running, I'm not particularly fast or awesome at it. I I'm really slow and (laughs) I've fallen off the wagon a few times. So, you know, just cause, just cause I'm known for that doesn't mean that I do it all the time. So I'm trying to get back on the wagon right now, in fact. That's one of the great things about running uh, is that it's open to all skill levels. And I agree with you that it's very much a, it's very much a cleansing thing um, for me, too. And, and in fact, I think of it as like a as like a um, if I'm in like a fog or I can't really think straight, I can just go running and I come out of that like, oh, yeah, that's why I run. That's um it's great that it helps me be able to eat more pizza and not get fat, but <laughs> it's um, like I ran before this interview because I've come to almost rely upon it like, oh, if I don't run, I'm going to be out of it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so um, I think it's really, uh, it's good that you've, you've you you know, you find these things and it's, uh, um, you know, I've, I've been like, I actually remember, I, uh, I know that I knew that it was a fairly new thing for you. Cause I remember, I think you tweeting about it four years ago or whenever it was. And, um, just being really like inspired that you're like, Oh, I'm, you know, I have never run before and I'm going to start. Uh, and I think that there's, you know, we should probably wrap up here pretty soon, but, um, there's some other things that you have gotten interested in that are real, r- real defiances of your past self. Like, um, oh yeah. Like you said, you were a tomboy growing up and you quote unquote dressed horribly. And now you're like, I think, known in our like tech circle as being very fashionable. And well, e- thank you. And even going as far as to sew your own clothes, which, yeah. which sounds like it would have been the shocker of all shockers for 18 year old Jackie Chang. Yes. There's so many things I do now. I mean, in fact, in a way, I've really become a lot more domestic than I used to be. I, it's not just sewing, which I did take up. Um, I also cook now, which I never used to cook. I, I, I didn't even know how to cook. When I went to college, I could not, I could not even make macaroni and cheese from a box. Um, and I actually had to rely on my male roommates um, in, in my latter part of college to teach me because I, I didn't even know how to I literally did not know how to boil water. Like that was a thing that I did not know how to do. <laughs> and so uh, now I obviously cook all the time. Um, I also garden and um, I do all sorts of weird stuff uh, that is very sort of traditionally um, like a, women's things that I didn't used to do. And these are things that I was not taught to do even when I was a kid. Uh, you know, I had a two parent two working parent household and not just that, but both my parents were entrepreneurs. They ran their own businesses. And so I, I mean, I had a fine childhood and all, but like I wasn't, I just wasn't taught a lot of these things. And so, um, it's something that I probably resisted also for a while since I was so tomboyish. I, you know, I just didn't want to be associated with that kind of stuff, like women's work (laughs) and cooking and all that stuff. But, um, you know, now that I've tried to find more balance in my life and, and in my mind, um, I find those things to be very therapeutic. So even sewing is very therapeutic. Um, similar to running, like it kind of lets you sort of go into this mode where you're, you're just kind of concentrating on, on creating something and, 
uh, your mind, at least for me, your mind really just sort of goes inward and you're just kind of thinking about lots of things. So for me, it's very meditative in the same way that running is. Like I just kind of think about stuff and I'm making something and that's really, you know, making something with your hands is really satisfying, whether it's sewing or woodworking or whatever. And so, um, and same thing with cooking too. You know, I really like creating a thing that, um, myself and other people can enjoy. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I I think that for me, it's, it's, uh, sort of like, I hate to say like it's a return to these like feminine (laughs) activities because I don't think of it that way because for me, that's not how it was. Like these are, these are skills that I learned way after the fact. Like when I was like well into my twenties, these are skills that I learned. And I think these are skills that a lot of people could benefit from learning. Um, not just because it's good to know how to cook and stuff like that, but also because I think it's really, it, it's really, I think it helps you sort of balance your life out a little bit and like figure out where your mind is. <laughs> yeah, that that all makes sense. And, you know, to to be fair to your tomboy younger self, it's not like all of your new interests have been feminine, you know, running or cycling are not particularly feminine. Um, <laughs> it just seems like you sort of branched out. You've gave, you gave yourself permission at some point to branch out, I think. Yeah, I, I highly recommend cooking, by the way. Nerds love cooking because it's like a, a formulaic kind of thing, and I really think it's fun. So anyone listening should totally try cooking, even if you have no idea how to do it. Well, what What is your advice for, like, is there, like, one web page or one first recipe you would recommend people to um, to start on if, if they've never really cooked? You know, it's kind of cliche to say this, but I honestly think that um, watching a lot of uh, Good Eats episodes by Alton Brown those are a really cool way to sort of get into the basics of cooking because Alton Brown, um, at least in his shows, he does not focus so much on like recipes or, or things like that. He really focuses on the science of it. Like why does, you know, doing it this way, you know, come out another way? Why does caramelizing an onion change its properties versus boiling it? Um, and so if you're, especially if you're science minded, uh, I think that good eats is a really good thing to watch because it really helps you understand like why you do things to make a certain kind of end product. Right. So yeah, those are, I I think that you can um, even find some of those episodes online, like on, I'm not exactly sure, but like on Hulu or Netflix or something. So those are definitely recommended. That's, That's a great tip. I know lots of nerds who are very fascinated with Alton Brown. So I think that you will, you will have done a good, a good, uh, job giving that tip (laughs) well uh jackie i think we better wrap this up it's been so much fun talking um but i don't want to uh exceed the uh patience (laughs) of our of our podcast listeners um is there uh uh, for folks who want to follow jackie on twitter you can find her at e jackie and she spells her name j-a-c-q-u-i and um also uh worth noting we've mentioned that you write at Ars Technica but um uh arstechnica.com you can find all of her writing and all, all of her technical writing i guess um and lots of other great articles is there anything mm-hmm. else that um we should know about uh, your online presence that you want to share um 
Let's see. I guess Twitter and ours are, are probably it. I'm trying to not spread myself too thin. So I do write a little bit on a blog. Um, if you just Google my name, Jackie Chang, uh, you could probably find it. But I mostly write about gardening stuff and other family-related things and life things. So nothing too crazy. But if you're interested, you can you can go read that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Twitter's mostly where I project most of my thoughts. Twitter is a great starting point for most people these days. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Jackie. It's been so much fun chatting with you. And thank you for having me so much. Take care. All right. You too. All right. Well, that wraps up another episode of Bit Splitting. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a positive rating and review on the iTunes store. You can find out more about the show at bitsplitting.org slash podcast, where you'll also find a list of links pertinent to this and other episodes. Take care.